turning the microphone on. I'm doing an episode on this book called Same as Ever by Morgan Housel. Great book. I'm going to try to relate it to NBA things. We'll see how this goes. So Morgan Housel is one of my favorite authors, pretty much just going by like really loving the psychology of money and now also going by same as ever. But I knew it would be a book I enjoy. It's short chapters. So 100 words is what he aims for. He talks about his writing process and what he wanted to do with the book in uh, different interviews at first for a follow up book to psychology of money or maybe he was talking about writing psychology of money writing books that he was aiming initially to he wanted to be like other nonfiction writers that were writing like 5,000 to 6,000 word chapters but it just wasn't working for him he did try to do it for a few months sent it to friends didn't work so he stuck to what he knew and a lot of the writing that he does and why he got the book deal in the first place was he was writing yeah pretty much like 1500 word blog posts that's the chunk of writing that he owns and the reason I like that format I need to find more books like this is I do listen to audiobooks. I think it's one of the best books for to listen to with an audiobook because you can jump around. I'm sure there was a lot of thought into how to sequence everything when he was putting the book together, but you can jump around, and I like that for audiobooks. Just for me personally, I know a lot of people are able to listen to full novels in there as audiobooks. I can't really do that. I have a hard time with any long narrative, so that even goes for long chapters. I end up having to rewind a bunch, especially for a novel. I really do bad with audiobooks with novels because I lose my place, I rewind, and then I just get different things out of order. It's hard to keep everything in order if I continue to rewind. Then, how did this thing happen? Anyway, for nonfiction books, Morgan Housel has some of the best books, or at least for me. Just how I listen, I enjoy them. Same as ever. Great book. The reason I want to relate it to NBA stuff is just to, I don't know, I don't want to, it, it's probably enough for me to just to summarize things in the book, but I do want to practice trying to make connections to other things. I have been paying attention to the NBA and making some NBA related content with YouTube shorts about Giannis and Mamba mentality. Also, it makes it possible to then create shorts from this podcast, which is the thing that I want to do, just as far as my process for making this stuff, I want to create long content and then cut that into shorter content. I did that with the Be Useful podcast episode. I want to do it with future episodes. That's like the two ways to go about it. Take something big, chop it up, or take the short stuff and then compile it together. But I, I realized I can also do both things. So it's like the podcast is really like working through some of the rough ideas. Then the shorts are picking the ones that can be accompanied by visuals more easily. And then if I compile that into a video, it can turn like all of the ideas from a 20 to 30 minute podcast into something like a five to seven minute video, much more compressed, distilled and uh, accompanied by more interesting visuals. I do still want to do audio only episodes. I need to figure out what kind of video to accompany it with to post because I did one on Super Mario Wonder, posted that and then added some gameplay footage, but it's not that interesting of gameplay footage. Just me playing through 20 minutes of the game. I think people were actually interested when I did the Daigo one. People were commenting on my Street Fighter 6 footage, talking about, oh yeah, you're missing some easy openings, that sort of thing. Anyway, I'm still going to continue with the Super Mario Wonder content, but I'll dive into this one now. Same as ever, NBA stuff. I wrote an outline before this. We'll see how the outline helps. And I need to stop talking about the podcasting and get to podcasting. Here we go. Same as ever, best story wins. It is the idea of the power of stories. One of the stories that Morgan Housel shares here is about Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens. A lot of the criticism 
that in particular, it's one review that Morgan Housel shares about Sapiens. And it's just this idea that he did nothing new. He just made it more digestible, make that digestible. So yeah, the criticisms, oh, he, he took, he didn't do anything new. And then here's the excerpt from Same as Ever. Harari once said about writing Sapiens, I thought, this is so banal. There is absolutely nothing there that is new. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not a primatologist. I did zero new research. I was really reading the kind of common knowledge and just presenting it in a new way. What Sapiens does have is excellent writing, beautiful writing. The stories are captivating. That's Morgan Housel's comment on what Harari says about his own writing. There is this idea of, yes, exactly, that I like where people are saying, oh, he just made it digestible with interesting stories. Yes, exactly. That's what makes the book so popular. It's easy to read. It's interesting to read. It's entertaining. And then, yeah, there's the education portion of it as well, of course. And the yes, exactly thing also is from Ryan Holiday. He's become this face of modern stoicism. And the criticism is that, oh, he's just taking old ideas and then sharing it with new stories. And his whole thing is, yes, exactly. That, That is exactly what I'm doing. That was what I set out to do. And thank you. If if that was meant to be a criticism, it's actually a compliment because that was his goal. I think he's described it this way. He's translating through time that you can translate between languages, but also what he does is he takes these old ideas and then translates it through time to relate human nature things, principles to modern life. Yeah. Using modern stories. That comes back to this same as ever idea of best story wins. Why does this matter? How does this relate to the NBA? The best story wins. It is this idea of narratives in the NBA that I actually just how we consume basketball now is that the most digestible things win. It used to be that the narrative mostly came from team performance, that there were probably local beat writers, so you follow your local team through the newspaper, and then some national stories for the most popular teams, and then there's probably a sub-narrative there. But it is it was aligned to performance as well. And yes, there have always been highlights, but and I'll get into this in the, the next section, but now you can just watch, you, you can fill your time watching highlights instead of watching a full game. Instead of spending two to three hours watching a game, you can watch highlights for two to three hours if if you felt like it, just from the past year, any sort of compilation. And today, the most digestible things win. So sometimes the best story is just like what's most digestible, whether that's short highlights or just reading stories. So it's off-court narratives. That's what becomes interesting. And in the whole MVP debates within a season, it's what's the best story to have here? And as much as the voters don't want to factor that in, all the discussions end up talking about how that kind of thing can affect voters. That if last year, if Jokic won the MVP three times in a row, then that creates a story. But is that a story they want to vote for? Because then that puts him in, is it like Larry Bird and probably like Michael Jordan? And then maybe Shaq? But to win three in a row is huge. Went to Embiid. And it's not necessarily just that. It's just at a certain point when they're campaigning for MVP, it's just about, is this the best story? And then what are the pieces that you can use to create the best story? Sometimes uh, I'm guessing some voters care more about stats, some care about winning. And that's where it's uh, the best story. And there's different elements to each story. Stats and how the team did individual stats on a bad team that you were still able to pull that in the context of your teammates so that's for any individual season and there's a whole goat debate all the context there that uh, again best story wins michael jordan going six and oh 
in the finals is the best story for a lot of people in the more modern game. Because if you're only going by that, then so Bill Russell won this many finals. Then you go by that. And then the other story is just the longevity of LeBron and the longevity of his greatness as well. He's doing pretty crazy things as the oldest player in the league right now. And that makes for a, a great story. As long as he continues at this level for more years, that only brings more people to his side into the longevity camp of things. So it's assuming good performance. Winning heals everything. Winning is always the best story. Let me move on to the next topic, and it's somewhat related. From Same as Ever, there's a chapter called Wild Numbers, and the book quote that I have here is, the decline of local news has all kinds of implications. One that doesn't get attention is that the wider the news becomes, the more likely it is to be pessimistic. This is about how much more access we have to news around the world, how much more access we have to just like different people's perspectives around the world, where it used to be like, you could get good news on local news, but no one really cares as much about local news compared to the amount of attention that comes through national, international news. With the history of newspapers, history of media, social media, the thing that gets the most attention wins, that oftentimes is negative news. Now we have news that's becoming wider, but also more negative. So it's easy to be pessimistic. And uh, just related to something from this weekend, Sam Altman was fired by the OpenAI board. I started to follow the news pretty closely for a few hours. And even during it, I just couldn't stop myself from refreshing Hacker News, refreshing Twitter. I just wanted to know. And I even remembered a different time where I did this. Why did I invest so much time in this? It was when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I remember texting friends, checking Twitter, and just following it for hours and then hours the next day. It was just a waste of time. You're experiencing this thing in culture. You want to experience it in real time. It didn't really improve my life very much in any way. It just ate time up then it was pretty much just negativity. I'm not saying I don't want I want to stick my head under a rock or anything like that, but it was probably useful to know what happened, watch the clip, then maybe read five to ten minutes of like reactions to it. But I, I must have been thinking about it for a few hours. And same thing with OpenAI. I don't know how useful it was to pay all this attention to it as it was happening. It was definitely interesting and entertaining, but there are probably better ways to be entertained than following that. The news is getting wider, so how does this relate to the NBA? So many games are available, so much content is available. We follow highlights, we follow sound bites. It's probably always true that we follow the player sound bites, but those are getting shorter and shorter. This wasn't necessarily about the NBA. I think it was like the presidential campaigns or something like that. In the earlier times of TV, the average sound bite for a presidential candidate during a campaign is something like 40 seconds. It was down to eight seconds or nine seconds 20 years ago, and now it's down to seven seconds, which is so short. We're getting a much higher quantity of much shorter content. In an hour, if you like just swipe through different videos or swipe through social media, like how much content, how many individual pieces of content can you go through in an hour? It's a pretty insane amount. Oh yeah, I was talking about NBA. Now you can just watch highlights. Something I do every day is I go, I go to Reddit and then check for the most recent videos so I can see the highlights. It's pretty much the craziest plays that happened 
And then if it's off the court stuff, it's usually a pretty negative, I would say, <laughs> something dumb someone said, something people disagree with, or people widely agree with someone because they're saying something negative about someone else or something like that. I guess there, there are some cases where it's good news of someone did this cool thing. We're happy to see that as well. When it's surprising because someone did a nice thing with highlights, it, it really used to be that you would maybe see a cool play watching the game. Then you'd have to wait for Sports Center Top 10 to see that dunk again. I remember my dad used to probably have CNN on all the time, but uh, the CNN play of the day. I remember going to the Sonics and Kings game, and Chris Webber had, I, I want to say it was like some kind of alley-oop. I was so excited to see it as a play of the day because I remember seeing it and then thinking, oh, this might be the play of the day tonight. And then it was, and I was like, really excited about that. Then there was this time where I went to this game. It was like the Sonics and Kings in 2005, if I want to say, where I forget his name, but he brought like a garbage bag because the Kings had him, had traded him to the Sonics. And there was this whole thing about he had to pack everything in the garbage bag. Anyway, one of my favorite plays like in NBA history is Luke Ridnauer gets a steal or a loose ball dribbles it behind his back to keep it away from defenders and then does i want to say it's like a behind it's not really a behind the back pass but it's like a one-handed pass nice fancy pass to richard lewis for a dunk there was this time where i just couldn't find the highlight because it wasn't like the most popular play but now now i can find it online and it's like any of these like small interesting plays are available online we have infinite options for content that we want to watch and the thing that sticks out that can stick out beyond the best highlights is usually recency and to stick out in a sea of content for things that happen today. Like how many post-game interviews are there every day? It's usually something negative. Let me move on to the next section. Same as ever. This is number three. This chapter was called Calm Plants the Seeds for Crazy. The idea here is that if you're living in a calm time, it, the longer you stay or the longer a group of people, a country stays in calm time, it's planting the seed for something crazy to happen. And here's the quote that I have from here. Jerry Seinfeld had the most popular show on TV, then he quit. He later said the reason he killed his show while it was thriving was because the only way to know where the top is to experience the decline, which he had no interest in doing. Maybe the show could keep rising, maybe it couldn't. He was fine not knowing the answer. If you want to know why there's a long history of economies and markets blowing past the boundaries of sanity, bouncing from boom to bust, bubble to crash, it's because so few people have Seinfeld's mentality. We insist on knowing where the top is, and the only way to find it is to keep pushing until we've gone too far. When we can look back and say, ah, I guess that was the top. When things are going up, people put more money in. That was the end of the highlight. When things are going up, people put more money in. The more stable things are, the more likely people are to take risks because the risk looks lower because things have just gone up. So this makes it more likely for a crash to happen. The more things are going up, the lower the bars for something to count as crazy. A good book is The Comfort Crisis. So I've really enjoyed this one by Michael Easter. Also check out Scarcity Brain. This is another book by Michael Easter. But in The Comfort Crisis, it's about we've grown so comfortable. Life has become pretty comfortable. So now we've stopped doing certain things that are good for know, human health. Spending time outdoors, spending time in silence, away from the fire hose of news, fire hose of social media. And because it's so comfortable, there are these seemingly small things in a vacuum that can create a lot of stress. I've definitely been stressed in my life by seeing how oh, some notification came in. And then, oh man, what is this thing going to be? I put to be not necessarily a full fight or flight or anything like that, but 
it does just make me anxious. And I, I, I can feel the stress building up by pretty much like a 12 by 12 orange dot on my screen. So there's more to it, like more that's abstracted from what it represents. But again, in a vacuum, it's like things are so calm, so comfortable that just that becomes such a disruption. How does this relate to the NBA? I guess more on the sort of like economy sort of thing where Morgan Housel gives a good example. I, I remember this from a podcast. I don't remember the exact thing in the book. If there was some hypothetical world where stock prices only went up, people would just continue to... The only logical thing to do is put just keep putting more money into it. If it was guaranteed to go up, people would just take loans out, start throwing their money into it. Then the longer it's been going up, people are putting like way more. Prices are getting inflated. Then small dips start to become issues. People are so leveraged that the small dip is catastrophic. In the NBA, when a team goes on a winning streak, then the bigger event it becomes when a loss comes. Especially once a team gets into, say, a 10 game straight, 15 to 20 games straight, a regular season loss isn't that big of a deal. But when they're 25 games into a streak, then any regular season loss becomes a big deal. Teams are gunning for them. They're winning over and over, plants the seed for something to be crazy. Even if it's like a regular loss, now it seems crazy for a team to to lose because they seemed so dominant. And in a way, the, this related to what the NBA is doing with the in-season tournament, the, the regular season seems so calm. Like a lot of the games are meaningless, so meaningless that teams are happy to rest players to do load management. The regular season is so comfortable. Teams can get so comfortable, so calm that they'll just rest their players. This is almost a reversal of it that the NBA decided to inject some craziness into the calmness. It's been calm for so long that it led to the creation of this in-season tournament. Now we have these crazy courts to try to create some heightened experience during the regular season to create a trophy and then to try to add more meaning to games in the regular season. I don't know. It's pretty cool. Hopefully no one gets injured from the slippery courts, but otherwise it's fun to follow. It's helping me understand how cups work in international football. This reminds me of that Chris Rock joke of the tiger attacking. Everyone says the tiger went crazy and he says the tiger didn't go crazy. That tiger went tiger. That life was so comfortable that we would pay tickets to watch a tiger look like a normal person. It, it planted the seeds for something crazy to happen. Number four, same as ever, there's a chapter called Does Not Compute. The subtitle of it is, The World is Driven by Forces That Can't Be Measured. I wrote here, sprinkle a little bit of human over that spreadsheet. And the highlight that I have here is, a lot of things don't make any sense. The numbers don't add up. The explanations are full of holes, and yet they keep happening. People making crazy decisions and reacting in bizarre ways that seem to defy rational thinking. Most decisions aren't made on a spreadsheet where you add up the numbers and a clear answer pops out. There's a human element that's hard to quantify and explain and that can seem totally detached from the original goal, yet it carries more influence than anything else. That's the end of the highlight. Another thing from his previous book, The Psychology of Money. One of the examples that sticks out most from that book is that Morgan Housel paid off his mortgage, even though all the calculations, all the spreadsheet math you do would say that it'd be better to put whatever money in the market, the games would be better there. But there's so much psychological benefit to paying the house off that he says it's one of the best decisions he's made. He said it was a bad financial decision but a good human decision something like that because of the amount of security it provides him just knowing that if something were to happen to him he would know that at least his wife and children would always have that home paid off here's how it relates to the nba it's this idea that there's a human element what came to mind is that the rockets missing 27 straight three-pointers when they could have put the 
warriors away. And the Rockets were very much into the analytics revolution in, in the NBA. At the same time, they lost to the Warriors, who shoot a lot of threes and played fast, small ball, which also has a lot of connection to analytics. The optimal way to play on a spreadsheet doesn't always work because there's a human element, and maybe that human element showed up. On a spreadsheet, you don't miss 27 straight three-pointers, but that's the human element that comes with pressure. The ultimate equation and other thing to sprinkle on to things is winning cures all. Again, if you sprinkle some winning over that spreadsheet, then you look like a genius. If you look, if you're if you're doing something based on the spreadsheet and you're winning, you look like a genius. If you're doing things that are showing up on the spreadsheet, but you don't win a championship, this is similar to Mike D'Antoni with the eight seconds or less Suns. They found success in the regular season, but maybe the human element appears more in the playoffs and the spreadsheet approach stops working. Not everything fits on the spreadsheet. All right. Same as ever. Number five, too much, too soon, too fast. That's the chapter title. The subtitle of it is a good idea on steroids quickly becomes a terrible idea. The highlight is Warren Buffett once joked that you can't make a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. You'd be surprised, though, how common it is for people to attempt to speed up a process beyond what it can handle. Whenever people discover something valuable, particularly a lucrative investment or a special skill, there is a tendency to ask, great, but can I have it all faster? Can we push it twice as hard? Can we make it twice the size? Can we squeeze some more juice out of it? That's the end of the highlight. There is a programming book called The Mythical Man Month. The idea is that if you're doing a programming project, if the estimate for one person to do it is three months, it doesn't necessarily mean if you throw three people at it, maybe you can get it done in one month. But it is definitely not the case that like, oh, you have 90 people on it, that it will be completed in one day. Definitely doesn't work. And as much as people know that, there's still definitely projects out there where that are behind schedule and people will think, let's just add some people to this. That should make it go faster for Every person you add to it, there's more communication, more miscommunication as well. If you have a team of two people, the feedback cycle is pretty pretty clean. There's only conversations between two people. Once you add a third person, now you have three relationships with different conversations and also conversations with all three happening at the same time. And four people, five people, all of these different individual conversations can make it hard for clear communication to scale as well. That's this idea of something's working, let's just try to do more of it, or try to multiply it fast. How does this apply to the NBA? This happens less, which is great, where players go bankrupt after leaving the league. Players with tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars being ruined financially. A lot of this is because of scars of the past. It was happening to a lot of players. Now, the NBA provides different resources, financial education. They probably have helped them find financial advisors as well to help manage all this money because it is so much money that comes in too soon, too fast. One example, Antoine Walker had over $100 million in the bank, but was happy to spend it very quickly. He was bankrupt within two years after he left the league. So some of it is cars, clothes. He says he never wore a designer suit twice. If someone else had a car he liked, then he would buy the same one to, to keep up with the Joneses. He was also keeping his entourage around, making sure that they had nice things as well. His payroll for his entourage was $8 million a year or something like that. Sometimes that seems obviously silly. Of course, he went bankrupt. But he also invested in real estate. And that's where it is this idea of getting back to this thing of this tendency to ask, can I have it all faster? Can we push it twice as hard? Make it twice, as, twice the size? Maybe in real estate, it's not, oh, this is going to 
happen fast, but I guess the idea is, okay, real estate will not, the gains will not happen quickly, but the gains are more likely and larger over time. So he put $20 million in real estate. The market crashed. 2008 happened. He was forced to pay back the banks and was bankrupt, filed for bankruptcy in 2010. There's a reversal of this where Giannis just has a different mindset growing up in Greece. This is a quote from the Giannis biography. The brothers were both still adjusting to American restaurants. They had gone to Morton's Steakhouse for a team dinner. Opening the menu, Giannis was shocked. $60? How could a steak, a piece of meat, be $60? He could have bought a lot with $60. Sneakers, three shirts, paid a utility bill. That's the end of the quote. And there's a bunch of examples of this where he was making money and was scared to spend it. It's either on this trip or another one with his brother where... The Bucks got each of them separate rooms in a hotel. They couldn't understand why they grew up sleeping in the same room, sleeping in the same bed. So one of them just goes to the other room and they just slept in the same room. It didn't make sense to spend that money on separate rooms for two brothers. Another thing this relates to is the idea of scripts around money, where we get the idea that it's okay to spend this amount or that we shouldn't spend that amount on certain things. It's good to build awareness around Ramit Sethi, who does a lot of different finance content. I like his idea where if you're going to spend money, make sure to build awareness around the things that will really make you happy to spend money on. And don't feel guilty about spending money on that. For him, it's clothes and travel. That might be different depending on the person. I spent money on a home gym last year. I think that definitely was worth spending on. And half of my technology purchases are things that I have some buyer's remorse about. Maybe I don't need three Kindles. <laughs> All right. That's the end of the podcast. Thanks for checking this out. Check out Same As Ever and check out the National Basketball Association as well.